Welcome to Kashrus on the Air, your weekly radio show dealing with kosher issues for the kosher consumer. And I'm your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashrus Magazine. And tonight's show, since it's the last one before Rosh Hashanah, the last one of the year, I packed in here material that, wow, I hope I get through all of it. There's just so much here. Let me start with something that was interesting to me. I just happened to look at it today. I got it a few days ago, but I just happened to look at it today. It's a list of updates from uh, the, uh, the Kashrus organization in South Africa, the based in of, South, uh, of Johannesburg, South Africa. And I'm going to just point out a few amazing things that I saw in this list over here. You know, where you get used to these mislabeled, unauthorized use of a kosher symbol, parvidari clarifications, but you're used to all of this stuff after a while. But actually there are new things that are happening all the time, and I think you'll agree with me on some of these. First of all, they, they have a, a, a product over here which is called Cape Point Crumbed Hake Fish Fingers. That's a lot of words. A hake is a fish, so the, the Cape Point is a place, and these, they have these uh, fish, the hake from that Cape Point, and uh, they make fish fingers out of them. So it's, it, it says um, they're kosher certified parva with a, a BD logo, BD from the basin of South Africa. But they're not past Israel, okay, and not Mahadran. That bothered me very much. What is not Mahadran? So obviously there's something here that I don't know, and I have to look into it, but can you imagine such an announcement? It's not Pas Yisrael, and it's not Mahadran. Well, that certainly makes me want to find out what's not Mahadran about it. Another, another one of their announcements was this. Pesto Princess Butter Chicken Sauce. The word butter has quotations around it. Pesto Princess Butter Chicken Sauce. That doesn't sound too good to me. A butter chicken sauce. Okay, the butter is in parentheses, I mean in, in quotation marks, so maybe it, it means it's not really butter. But butter chicken sauce, it echoes me, has, has, been, has been recertified by the basin of South Africa as kosher parva whether it has the BD logo or it doesn't have it, as long as it was manufactured after June 14th. In other words, they dropped Arshkacha for some reason, and now they put it back on butter chicken sauce. Doesn't feel good to me. Doesn't feel good. Uh, the last one is the most interesting one. And I, I, you know, I run across these, and you, you may run across them too, but it's really, really interesting if you take a look at this. This is in one of their notices from the based in of South Africa. Peanut butter sold by Prom Trade Corporation in uh, PTY, what sounds like limited, in South Africa under the brand O Nuts. O H, second word nuts. O Nuts. Not affiliated with the U.S. company, bears an unauthorized OK symbol. So this is not even based in a South Africa issue, but it's being sold out there. It's a company in South Africa, and they're putting 
they call the product O-Nuts. And I'm looking at it, and believe me, it looks like the, sa- the same kind of design that the O-Nuts company has. And it's not O-Nuts company. It's Prom, Prom Trade Corporation from South Africa. And it has an unauthorized OK on it. This company and their products are not certified by OK certification. So this was this is, was a, was an eye opener. I mean, of course, you're going to say to me, "Well, I never been to South Africa. I don't plan to go to South Africa. So what do I care?" But you don't realize that products from in South Africa reach our shores as well. And you don't realize that when you go into those uh, special stores, which a lot of people are using now because of the uh, economic situation, a lot of people using the dollar stores and the, you know, where they, where they took items that are not selling or that, you know, surplus, and they put it in these stores. Uh, and, and, and a lot of times products come from other countries into those stores. And you're going to see O-Nuts. You're going to think, oh, that's, I know the O-Nuts. It has OK on it. Great. Now you know that you got to know which company produced it. O-Nuts is a company. O-Nuts over there is a brand. Looks very, very, very similar, if not exactly like the O-Nuts company in America. Interesting product, interesting issue. I'm going on. Now I'm going to mention a few things that I have in my September Kashris Monthly, which just went out. Um, there, these, these are four items. I have plenty of items here, but um, these four are all interesting. I mean, aside from information, which you could read or everything, that's why we put out the monthly. People who want to get something in front of them list everything that's happening at once, pack it in, and then you get this on a monthly basis, keeps you on top of everything. The magazine comes out only five times a year, and uh, so it's, it, it, the monthly gets you coming much cooler quickly. Anyway, this is an interesting story here. The Orthodox Union, that's the OU, doesn't certify Heart of Jerusalem restaurants. Okay. There are a lot of things they don't certify. These Heart of Jerusalem restaurants are found in Colorado and in Florida. I know a lot of Jews who travel to Florida. Colorado, a little less. But to Florida? In the course of the year, I'm getting calls all the time about people going to Florida. Heart of Jerusalem restaurants has an OU on the menu, but it's unauthorized. On the menu it says OU, but it's not authorized. That's a biggie. Next, I can't even read this thing because it's not something that we're used to. The Orthodox Union does not certify, let me try, I can't do it properly, Ziam Tijos, Pienis Reggiano Cheese. It's made in Lithuania and sold in Mexico. Okay, so, you know, I'm, I'm probably not going to run into it, and you probably won't either, so why am I bothering you? But listen to this. Some of the 4.5 kilo blocks of cheese are being sold with an Orthodox Union, that's an OU, letter of certification stuck to the wrapper. They have a, they, they sending, they're selling it, and there's an OU letter of certification attached to the wrapper. And the certificate doesn't mention the name of that cheese. And it's absolutely unauthorized. So here you got a certificate attached to the packaging 
and it's bogus. Unbelievable. Next one I think is interesting because of what goes on on the internet. There's a, uh, <laughs> I'm going to try my best to pronounce this one. This is easier though. There's a, a uh, website called Buy Psychedelics Online. I would think just online, there probably be an S is an extra, but anyway, that's what I have here. BuyPsychedelicsOnlines.com. They're selling something called Golden Ticket Psilocybin Mushroom Chocolate Bar, 3.5 kilograms. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, 3.5 grams. It's very small. I don't maybe maybe it's a mistake in what I have here. But uh, with an unauthorized CRC Parva. CRC is from Chicago, Chicago Binnacle Council. The CRC Parva logo, the CRC doesn't certify the product. So this is what happens many times. Things are on the web, and you're buying it off the web. You see this, the, the, you, on the picture that they show you, it has a symbol, a kosher symbol, but that does not necessarily mean that the product has that. So I don't know if it comes with the CRC or it's just on the website it's a mistake. It seems from here that it does have a CRC on it, and that's a mistake. In any event, uh, this is the kind of thing that's happening in our times because of the Internet. I think that's the real uh, source of the problem. Although if the product comes with a CRC on it, you would think it was under the CRC, and that's a mistake. The next one is something, I hope I'm right about it, because I'm the only one reporting it. It seems Frito-Lay made a voluntary recall on a limited number, only 31 bags, of seven and three-quarter ounces of Wavy Lay's original potato chips because they may contain undeclared milk ingredients. Milk ingredients. The product bears a plain OU, and not an OUD. At least that's what I saw online. I didn't go to the stores. I don't know. If you tell me it says OUD now, then what they have online is old product. But it, as far as I know, it just says OU and doesn't say OUD. And there was this recall. It's a small recall. It hasn't been popularized. Only a certain number of people are aware of this because it's going through the, the, the uh, federal... Um, uh, recalls. It's not necessarily something that was put out by the cashless agencies. The products were distributed to certain retail stores in North Carolina, South Carolina, and Virginia. No other Lay's products, flavors, sizes, or variety packs are recalled. It's interesting. 31 packages went to three states? Sounds a little suspicious to me. My, my guess is that there's more out there than, than 31 packages because you wouldn't get a distribution like that. In any event, the wavy Lay's original potato chips, you got to worry on the seven three and three-quarter ounce size, you got to worry that maybe it's really dairy, even if it says plain OU. Now, I got some very important stuff to report, but I'm going to give you one more little thing that uh, is a, it's an eyes-up kind of business. The OU puts out a past Israel list. These are, I mean, because this is for Rosh Hashanah, right? They said the Sarasia Mechuba. But people are mockpit, even who are not mockpit all year, there are many people mockpit all year, the people who are not mockpit all year, many people are mockpit on the 10 days to only use Pasis Rep. I'm not going to go through the list. It's 100 products or more. It's, it's gigantic. It's one, two, 
three, four pages, tiny, tiny letters. You know, it's over 100 products, maybe it's 150 or two. Of course, out of tens of thousands, it's a very small percentage. But when they first started doing this, mentioning the, the past Israel products, there were very few. But I'm going to skip anybody. The, the Hamish of brands, you can be sure, are going to be past Israel because the company and sometimes in additional Ashkocha is interested in past Israel. But I'm going to just tell you some that you wouldn't necessarily think are past Israel, just to get an idea of how things are building up. There are two Acme stores. These are supermarkets. One is in Milltown, New Jersey, and one is in Narbeth, Pennsylvania. The Acme in Milltown, all their fresh baked products are past Israel. The Acme in Narbeth, Pennsylvania, all fresh baked products are past Israel. Amazing. Go, um, the ShopRites in East Brunswick, all in-house prepared foods are both Pas Yisrael and Yoshin. <laughs> Amazing, no? Uh, in the, and the ShopRite in East Windsor, New Jersey, all in-house pro- prepared foods are both Pas Yisrael and Yoshin. Now, there's there many, many from businesses, that, but I'm not touching that. You'd know it anyway if I mentioned the Hamish brands. You wouldn't even think that they weren't past Israel. But here's Lily's Bake Shop. All the products are past Israel. Manashevitz, the Tam Tams are Yoshin, and of course the Chovetz are past Israel too. Italian coating crumbs are Yoshin, and they're past Israel. And cake mixes, all matzah products, they're Yoshin, and they're past Israel. Mrs. Adler's matzah products, past Israel. Uh, natural Ovens, a certain company makes uh, different breads. I can't go through the list. There's about 10 or 12 breads that Natural Ovens probably makes many more than this, but uh, they have at least 10, I believe, that I'm looking at that are Pas Yisrael, Natural Ovens Company. Okay, there's a company called Pats. All their products are Pas Yisrael. The ShopRite in Aberdeen and the ShopRite in Lawrenceville, all of their in-house prepared foods are Pas Yisrael and Yoshim. Snyder of Hanover, for products that they sell to Israel, and only only talking about that, all their products that they sell to Israel are Pas Yisrael. Well, that may be a requirement of the Rabbanut, but likely you might come across such a product because it will probably have Hebrew lettering on it, and uh, it would be, you'd see that it was being sold in Israel as well, and that's Snyder's of Hanover. There would be Pas Yisrael, their pretzels that are sold to Israel. Trader Joe's, listen to this, Chala, chocolate babka, mango babka, pumpkin spice babka, half-moon cookies, raspberry rugelach, all these are Pas Yisrael. Trader Joe's, amazing. Well, obviously, they're getting it from a company that does it. But the point is, you, you, you're buying it when you think it's Trader Joe's. Obviously, it was made for them by somebody. And this gives you a little bit of an idea of some of the interesting things that are developing uh, in the individual products. Now, the, the OU put out a very valuable piece, the Consumer Edition, which is, you might have gotten it already, you, or you will see it in the near future, I get it in the email. You can get it in the email if you go to Dafa Kashras and you, re- you request uh, that they get, they send it to you. 
Um, you can reach out to Rabbi Elif, E-L-E-F-F at the OU, or just ask about, um, you know, the Dafa Kashras, and I'll put you on their email list. doesn't cost anything. Now, they had put out a Dafa Kashras for the consumers, consumer edition, and they have a separate one for the trade, which I read both of them. The Dafa Kashras for the consumer edition was very interesting this time. Everybody must take a look at it. I should dedicate a whole show to it, and maybe we will dedicate a show to Shemitah in the upcoming year, because this year is going to be a year of Shemitah, which is going to affect us for the next couple of years. So I'm going to just tell you some of the tidbits in this beautiful piece that they put together on Dafa Kashris on uh, Shemitah produce in Chutzlaretz. We're now living in, we're not living in Israel, so we don't have a Shemitah issue here, but we have a Shemitah issue where the things come from Eretz Israel. So basically, there's a whole shayla, can they export things to America? Really, you're not supposed to, but there are ways around that. And one of them, everyone knows, is the mechira, that they sell the land of Israel to some Arabs or somebody else for the, for the year, and you make a deal, and, and it's, it's a sale, you know, like people sell the chametz, so they, they sell the land of Israel. Um, and that's one thing that brings a lot of products here. And then there's a method of Otsar based in, which we'll discuss in a second. In any event, there's Kedusha Shvis in some of the products, especially the wines. So there are products that are made during the Shemitah year that come to us from Eretz Israel, and we have to conduct ourselves with what we call Kedushas Shvis. We have to treat these food products in a different way from the way we treat everything all the time. The Torah forbids you to destroy in any way to destroy the, the Kedusha Shvi, it's something that was, that was a Shemitah product. You also you can't sell it the regular way. There's a whole set of halachos for Shemitah. But from our side, we're going to worry about what we get here, however we got it, and, uh, and what we do with it. So um, normally we say that Kedusha Shvi is something that has the holy level of of Shvi'as, of something that was grown and processed on, on the Shemitah, the Shemitah year, can only be eaten there at Israel and by Jews. At least that's normally you say like that. Uh, you're not allowed to do business with it, and you're not allowed to actively ruin it. The Rivet explains uh, that the, uh, the, the reason for this is that uh, we're afraid, we don't, we don't want to send out uh, we don't want to export Shemitah products to, to, out of Israel because we're afraid that people outside of Israel will not handle them properly. Now, there are still some ways, of course, in which we're going to get it, and many things like esrogim and uh, fruits and vegetables and herbs and uh, flowers and things like that come to us from uh, Eretz Israel. Here are some of the situations that we could encounter. Fruits and vegetables that may have been bought from Otsar Bestin. Otsar Bestin is an illegal way of buying product that is sold. It's not sold by the individual, it's sold by supposedly the Bestin. And the person who's doing the selling, he's representing the Bestin. He may be the owner of the, pro- of the, of the place where the, uh, where the product grew, he has the pardes, he has the uh, orchard, and therefore, the based in sort of makes him like 
uh, their representative, and it's really working for the Beistin, then he's allowed to do it. Uh, the truth of the matter is, there's a very fine line here between him working for himself and working for the, 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 the Beistin, but there is a halachic aspect to it, and this is very much done. Most of your uh, your your esrogim that you're going to get this year that will be from Shemitah product um, or next year would be Otsar Basin. But since um, it, it's coming early this year, uh, you know, I don't know where we're going to be getting our esrogim from. <clears throat> In any event, what they try to do is to pick them before Rosh Hashanah so it's not a Shemitah product, and that makes it a little bit easier to how to get it to here. But I don't know if they're really ready. But yeah, they should be because they're on the year, they're on the uh, on their trees for several years. So I think we won't have a problem at all this year, and uh, it'll be pretty well spelled out by the time you buy your lulav and esrik. The next part of the problem is like the hetem mechira. Now, Hetem Mechira is a little bit complicated because the OU, for example, would not rely on Hetem Mechira. They don't believe in this idea of selling the land of Israel to the Arabs, and uh, so many people don't do accept that. So they don't give Hashkocha to anything that relies on Hetem Mechira. But it's possible for things to end up here that you that came here through Hetem Mechira, and uh, you know the question is how do you deal with it? It's it's not an Avera that it's here. Uh, it's just that, uh, it, what's the status? It's got Kedush Shviyas. According to the people who are selling it to you, there's no Kedush Shviyas. It, it, was, it was sold to the Arabs, and, it, and, and the Arab worked the land, uh, and, and therefore it's his, his product, not the Jewish product, and therefore there's no prohibition. But it ends up here. Now, how do you deal with it? Next thing is, like, for example, the wines. Um, they import uh, wines, and sometimes they even mix the vintages so that you might have a seventh-year product, like this, the grapes that are coming now, and it might be mixed with a sixth or an eighth-year product. So there you might have actually wines that were not produced during Shemitah, but are using the wines that have, have a halacha of Shemitah wine and Kedusha Shviyas. That's part of the complications that exist. Now, on the bottles, it will say the year of production, and that you have to really watch, because if you, if, if you, if you realize that it was being produced during the Shemitah year, then you have to get uh, advice on how to handle it so that you maintain the respect for that product uh, different from the way you normally drink. And we'll see in a second what that means. Uh, what we do is we can't destroy the Shemitah product, the Kedusha Shriya's product. So, for example, we have to use it in a conventional way. For example, you can squeeze an eggplant, you can cook a tomato, you can mash a banana, you can peel an apricot, and you can make popcorn from corn kernels. This you're allowed to do. That's a normal way of processing these uh, vegetables. But anything which is unconventional, like making liquor from Shemitah dates, that has a, that, that's not permissible because you're, you're, you're doing it in a way that's sort of destroying part of it. Uh, so what do we do about something that we know has Kedusha Shviz? How do we eat it? And what do we do with the leftovers? 
what happens is that you could eat, let's say, for half an apple, and uh, the rest of it will get spoiled. That's not like you spoiled it, which was forbidden. It spoils itself. But it's better when you eat something that's Kedushish Vias to eat it completely and not, uh, and not only half the apple or most of the apple or get it down to the core. And then, of course, we're going to discuss what to do with the rest of it. Small, insignificant scraps that people generally throw away, bits of leftover salad or soup, peels, pits, and a drop of grape juice in a cup, which, of course, is very interesting, should be thrown away using what we call a pach shmita. A pach shmita means a special, uh, not garbage, well, let's say a special uh, dis- uh, container that the thing can, can dis- get to self-destroyed. It can just rot in there. That's what they do in Israel, and that's what you'd have to do here. If you're eating a product from Israel, from the Shemitah year, you'd have to let the food rot in this packaging, uh, and it would just take a certain amount of time, etc. Uh, the regular garbage is the regular garbage. So now you have to separate the regular garbage from the Shemitah product. So you put it into this Pach Shemitah, and uh, what about the small bits of food that are stuck to the pot? That you're allowed to wash off. Uh, now, if food became slightly spoiled, one is permitted to change it or use part of the food to make it edible. Um, certain poiskim, the tzitz eliezer, maintain that orange peels have kedushish vias. Now, I don't know what your experience is, but I personally like to eat the white inside the orange peel. Uh, many people don't enjoy that, but that's one of the things that I do. And the Israeli orange, the peel is thick, thick, thick. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, inside the peel. So the question is, what do you do with the peel, though? So uh, they have, so according to Tzitz Eliezer, the orange peels have Kedush Shviz, because sometimes they candy them, and they eat them as a candy product. Uh, so therefore... Peels like and, and apples and cucumbers, where you eat the uh, peels, they should be handled with kedushish vias, even if you personally peel them. So, I mean, you wouldn't eat it; you would consider it to be a non-food. But since so many people do eat the cucumber whole, I mean, or cut it up into pieces, but they eat, the, they eat it up to the rind. And uh, m- many people eat the apple whole, even if you maybe don't eat it that way. So, therefore, you have to treat the peels with Kedushish Vies. Now what do you do? You put this stuff into a um, receptacle, which is the Pach Shvies, until it's no longer edible for humans. If the food is cooked, after two days, it can be discarded in a regular garbage. If it's raw, you have to wait a week until it gets rotten, un- until adding it to the regular garbage. It's important that you to be careful when adding the new leftovers to the Pach Shviyas, let's say if Tuesday's scraps touch Monday's scraps. So now we have a problem. It's going to accelerate the new scraps, being how, how fast they get spoiled. So that's a problem. You have to keep them separated. So if I have today's peels, I can put it into a little bag and then put it into my Pach. 
or and tomorrow is in another little bag I put it in my pach. But to have them touching each other is a problem because the earlier ones that are rotting away will influence the other ones and destroy them. And since this is Kedusha Shviyas, we have no right to destroy it. Interesting material. Um, just one more thing I want to tell you here. It's best to avoid Kedusha Shviyas wine and grape juice, especially for Havdalah. Because if you have a custom to, op- to, to let it go over the top, then that would be considered usher if that was Kedusha Shviyas wine. So if you have a seventh-year crop that's Eretz Israel produced during Shemitah, and the wines, there are a number of them like that. And you buy them in regular stores. And they're going to sell it as a, you know, sell it to you. They have, a, they have somehow one way, how one way or another got there. Whether it came through uh, Otsa Basin or it came through Hatta Mechira, but it ended up with a decent Ashgacha on your doorstep, but, and you're buying it. Now we have a problem. You can't over, you can't fl- pour it over to where some of it goes to waste. That's an Easter of how you're dealing with Kedusha Shviz. So it's best to avoid these as much as possible. I'm skipping the issue of the beer, of the destroying of the, uh, or letting it rot. Uh, the beer, I'm not going to go into an Asman beer, is an aspect of it. We were just dealing with what do I do with product that I get? How do I eat it? How do I get rid of the excess? So I'm going to skip. Uh, they have a beautiful little uh, explanation of the different terms but I'm going to skip that and move along because we have so much to do. Uh, a number of months ago, we mentioned supposedly the first Orthodox Jewish ball player, Jacob Steinmetz, and then the second one, Eli Kligman. So I thought at that time that I was getting the right information, but it seems that some people know a lot more about baseball than I do. Maybe as a kid I do something. Today I know nothing. And it seems that the real first, quote, orthodox baseball player was Mori, Mari Arnovich. Uh, he was sometimes he's called Murray, sometimes he's called uh, Mo, sometimes he's called uh, another name that they have for him over here. I'll come, I'll come across it. Uh, but whatever it is, this man lived many years ago. He was born in 1910, and he died in 1959 at the age of 48. But he was supposedly the first orthodox ball player you know, in the National Leagues. And he played a good game. And uh, he had a lifetime average, batting average of 287. Something near 300 is is, is a fantastic batting average. And he, his runs batted in was 261. I mean, the man really played ball, and he pay, played ball um, for big, uh, some of the big, big, uh, the big teams, Philadelphia Phillies and New York Giants. What happened was that he played up until 1942 when he joined he and his brothers went into the army and was in the, were in the World War II for four years. But his career went up until then, and uh, he, he did a, a, bit, a bang-up job. What it, what's the reason I'm even mentioning this thing? Oh, sorry, another name they call him is Snooker. 
But the, the, two re- the reason I want to mention him is because of the orthodox aspect. He kept kosher his entire life. His family was orthodox. I don't know what he practiced himself on a daily basis. I don't know. But he definitely came from an orthodox home. He was considered to be an orthodox player. Um, there was a, a major game that was coming around. You know, the World Series was coming up. And it was right around Rosh Hashanah time. Uh, it seems every year it's around Rosh Hashanah and, uh, and Yom Kippur. Maybe this year will be Sukkot. I don't know what it's going to be. But it, there was a, a big game. And he was playing in the 1940 World Series with the Cincinnati Reds. And Hank Greenberg, which was, who was the, probably the most well-known Jewish player of that day, a fantastic player. So Arnovich sat at a couple of games because they were run on Rosh Hashanah. He would not play on Rosh Hashanah. Forget Sandy Koufax. He wouldn't play. Forget Yom Kippur. On Rosh Hashanah, he would not play. And kosher he was. And Greenberg continued to play, even though he's also known as somebody who observed on some level. But uh, he did play. It's according to this, this writer. Uh, he did play on Moshe Hashanah. In the seventh inning, in this game with the Cincinnati Reds and Greenbergs on the other, on the other team, uh, the seventh inning, the papers reported that Greenberg stepped up the bat and lifted a high fly which Arnovich caught in a stagger just inside the left field foul line. So Arnovich helped the Cincinnati Reds win the World Series in 1940 and catching that ball from, that was hit by Hank Greenberg. It doesn't mean much to this whole thing to me, except for the fact that we did have seems that somebody was out there you know, showing that you could be an observant Jew on some level and still be in the big leagues. Um, it hasn't been around for a long time, and that's why most of the, uh, the, the news media made a mistake and claimed that, he, that this, these two people were the first Orthodox. It could be in practice they more religious than the other one was. I don't know. I'd never, I wouldn't even begin to try to study this. I don't really care about it that much, but it's just the idea that uh, Hashem pre- pre- prepares people to be examples that, that you could follow. Now, as I said, then when we were discussing this first, that the young people today, they're not looking for big rabbis. They're not, most of them are not. They're not looking for great Orthodox speakers on Jewish topics. They're not open for that. But give them somebody like this who's playing ball. That's somebody that they can look up to and if he'll keep Shabbos, if he'll keep kosher, if he has standards, then maybe I should also. That's the theory behind this whole thing, this whole discussion, uh, because the young people need these dogmos, they need these examples. It, sa- it said here in the piece that I was reading, his parents always wanted him to become a rabbi, this, this Mori. But whatever it is, uh, he was very respected. There's a, there's a book called the Big, the Big Book of Jewish Baseball. 
many of the things that I've mentioned are from there. We're moving right along. We're coming to some, some things that maybe some of you can relate to more. Uh, I want to share with you, before I come to one, one thing that's very exciting to me, because I've been reading this book, and I want to share a few insights in there. The art school book called Living Legend by, about Rabbi Grossman, Rabbi Grossman of Migdal Ha'emek. There are two Kashra stories that I want to share with you. But right now, let me tell you what's going on in Eretz Israel. In Eretz Israel, there have been two big snafus, two big operations where they found Treif again. And uh, I'm not going to go into the details. I'm having something in the magazine about it. But it seems that you really, really have to stay on top of everything. It, it's, it's amazing to me the, the, the size of the trefa meat that they find in Eretz Israel. Trefa meat. We have a scandal here once every 10 years, and hopefully not every 10 years, but once in a while we do have a scandal in America, and it's a, it's a local thing, and it happens in one place, and uh, it could be any place in America. It was in Muncie, it was in, uh, it was in L.A., it's in this here, it's there, it moves around. One story once in a while. But in Israel, in the course of a year, I'm reading staggering stories of real treif meat being served to from people, the Jewish people. It's, it's staggering. Uh, the, the, the amount of cheating that's going on is something that boggles the mind. I'd like to share with you a, a few insights from Rabbi Heshi Kahan. I always like to uh, look at his pieces that come from the Shtibel. And um, he has halachic perspectives on glot kosher. Something tells me I did a lot of this before. I don't know if I even mentioned it to you, but I think this is a repeat. In any event, I looked at it and I saw some interesting things I want to share with you. Question is, you know, what is glot? We all know that problem. We understand what glot is today is not what glot used to be. So we stretched the term glot to include animals that of small adhesions, whereas a major adhesion we wouldn't touch. We say that's treif, uh, that's treif. But with the but the, the smaller adhesions, we sort of say we sort of say that that's not really a major adhesion, and we scrape it off and we check it, and then we still call the 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 animals as a glot if we didn't find three sirchus and if they're everything is okay when we check it which is a, an extension of the term glot, because glot really meant smooth with no adhesions whatsoever and with no holes and nothing, and still we stretched it a little bit for our use. The base Yosef, of course, you know, is makbid that, uh, that it has, any adhesion to the lungs is no good. You have to, have be, according to base Yosef, you need be Yosef glot, which is that there's no adhesions whatsoever. But it's not our current definition of glot kosher. And yet we have... Um, many, many, many shritas uh, that are producing what they call to be base Yosef Klad. There was a tshuva written by Shmuel Abuav because the Sfardim Alpidin follow the Bet Yosef. They follow Mechaber, the of Yosef Karo, the author of the Shulchan Aruch. We Ashkenazim follow the uh, we, we, we we follow the Ramo Ramosh Isilis. Who, who accepted the idea of scraping off 
some of the sirchus and uh, if there was something attached, and then checking the, the lung. So that's how we do it. Uh, today, every hashgacha that we know of that's worth anything requires galat kosher. But the definition of galat is closer to what the old kosher used to be. It's still in all that we, 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 we were, it's called galat, but it's not with the same uh, commitment to clean the way glot used to be. But halachically, it's kosher. But just whether we're calling it glot is really glot is an interesting question. So Rab Shmuel Abuav uh, ruled that a Sephardi can eat from an Ashkenazi, even though there's a question mark, because he may be eating meat that has these holes and these, and these adhesions, and, 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 uh, and, and, may, and then they would be... Uh, they would be treif according to the psak of the of, 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 of the of the mechaber. So how could they? They supposed to have bezos of glass. So how could they eat from Ashkenaz? And how could they go to an Ashkenaz store in a re- restaurant? So Rab Shmuel Abua Paskin that he can eat because it's only a suffix. The label says that it's that's not kosher according to the Svartic standards. But since it's possible that the lungs were really smooth, because just you don't say you have to have perfectly smooth doesn't mean that every one of the animals doesn't have perfectly smooth, because included in glad kosher is what the base Yosef would want. So it's possible that you're getting the meat that has the base Yosef's approval to it, and therefore the Svadi might actually be eating Beit Yosef glat. And if not... There, you, you can't dismiss the Ramor, the Machlok is Mechaber and the Ramor. So the, together, this is creates a, it's like a Sveik Sveika, and that's what the uh, Devar Shmuel, uh, the Shmuel Abuav, allowed for the Sephardim. Rabbi Yosef he went with this view also, specifically because it, if not, it would lead to hard feelings. So in the, in the Gullus, in America, for sure, uh, he allowed the Svadim to be able to use our glot kosher, even though it's not Bet Yosef glot. Now, uh, there's a, there are animals that have to be glot kosher, and that is some a young tender animal like a lamb or a kid, a goat uh, or veal. These animals have to be glot kosher because otherwise uh, 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 there will be a problem because it's a small hole, small this, we could easily be there and we wouldn't be able to see it well. So we have to have a glot. We, we need to get glot over there. Chickens also do, do not need to be glot. And therefore, that's how, uh, you know, I suppose how Svardim will be able to function among us and, and, and the similarities that exist. But this is, uh, you know, it, it's an old topic a topic of how one conducts himself among other people. Baruch Hashem, the Svartim did have leaders who permitted them this freedom. Let me just share with you, there's almost, you know, tiny little pieces of information, but there's, they came up recently and I wanted to share it with you. It's not tiny for the person involved. It seems that there's an Orthodox man who is located in London, and he came there to, to England in 2005. That's a good long time ago. It's 16 years ago. But 
he never bothered to become a citizen. So he, he's not living there, and it wasn't legal, and therefore they want to deport him and, uh, and, and send him back to Israel. But meanwhile, they haven't deported him, and he's sitting in a facility, a deportation center, and, uh, and meanwhile, he's basically starving. That's at least the way the article reads. I don't know the truth of it, but that's what they're claiming, uh, that they're giving him stale bread, he, for three days, he had the same exact meal for breakfast, lunch, and supper. That the amount of the food they give him is very, very small compared to whatever else eats. And he's wasting away. That's at least according to the article that was written. And uh, it, it, it creates an interesting discussion apropos of what's going on in America with the people who are coming in here illegally. At least you see that in America they're treating the people in a, uh, I mean, they give them food, they give them a place to live, they take care of the children, there seems to be that on some level there is proper control. It may be that they don't, I don't know, you could have to study that a little bit more, but it seems over there in England, at least for this gentleman, there seems to be a serious problem. Forget about whether his roommate, uh, cellmate, watches television on Shabbos, he's suffering. And uh, unfortunately, they don't seem to be cooperating with it, and that's one story. This story is not going to excite me too much, but it seems that Abel's and Hyman, which is under the OU, their hot dog, at least according to what I'm reading this article from August 25th, uh, just a few days ago, that Abel's and Hyman's hot dogs somehow beat out Hebrew Nationals hot dogs and rank 15th best in, 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 in an article that, was, uh, uh, that, that shows that they're the 15th best in, in America or in the world or whatever, and they somehow are taking over Hebrew National. I don't know if they are or they aren't. I would say it's a small company to consider the Hebrew National. My guess is they're not nearly as big, but they're certainly getting a little uh, nice PR over here. And what I, what I enjoyed about it is because Abelson Hyman has to be glut. It's an OU. And uh, it has to be, uh, you know, and it's, uh, it's got a reputation. It's an OU. That means it's a higher level. So it's, been, it's an interesting uh, twist. Uh, whether it, it really amounts to anything or not, I cannot tell you. But the Hebrew National was, all the years, was the uh, American standard of what kosher was supposed to be. Uh, not necessarily that we used it, but that was the way it was understood. It was never glot, by the way, and even though now it's under uh, the triangle K, but it doesn't, uh, it's not glot. So, and I, I think the Abel's and I mean, has to be glot because it's uh, under the OU. So I want to share with you this story from this book. I, I read the whole book. I, I can't say I read it at one time. It's a big book. It's about 500 pages, but I did read it in a very quick period of time, and I suggest if you want to see something extraordinary, then get Living Legend, Rabbi Grossman of Migdal HaEmek, written by Rabbi Nachman Seltzer, and by the Shar Press. I said, uh, it's, I had thought it was the, I said by mistake that it was art school. It's not art school. It's put out by Shar Press. It's worth whatever they charge you for the book. I didn't pay for it. Somebody gave it to me. This is uh, a story between Rabbi Grossman, 
who was what they used to call the disco rabbi, got married at 21, and he, he went to this new neighborhood, and he, and he was Makar of the whole place, up and down. Everybody, you, you'll, the, the, the people that are in this book, the pictures in this book of who he was close, he's been close with, and he's helped, and they, and they, they write like him. It's, it's a who's who. Now, the, the interesting, this story goes on and on and on because he had, he had miracle after miracle occurring, and he was being geared to be the chief rabbi of Israel, the Ashkenazic chief rabbi of Israel, but he refused to take it because his father didn't want him to take it. And in the book they talk about why. I'm not going to get into that now. This is a story that happened between Rabbi Grossman and uh, Arik Sharon, who was the prime minister of Eretz Israel. This is the story. Um, it seems that how he got into Kashrus, I don't know, but it seems that he did get, for a little while, he did get into Kashrus. It seems that uh, he, he was, uh, was supposed to give Ashkocha uh, factories that manufactured food around the city because he was the chief rabbi of, uh, of, of, uh, of Migdal HaEmek. And so one of the bigger concerns was a slaughterhouse. There was a schlacht house there that shechted thousands of Cornish game hens. A Cornish hen is a kavadika. It's a chicken, maybe you want to call it a chicken, but it's, it's a Cornish hen. It's high, high uh, end. And they were doing thousands on a daily basis. Once they were shechted, the hens were separated into different parts of the building, whether they were kosher or not. One day, the mashkiach came to Rabbi Grossman and reported that a number of crates filled with non-kosher hens had been earmarked to be disposed of. And they had gone missing from the warehouse. There was no way they could be found. And there were a number of crates. Crates got a lot of chickens in them. When I left left last night, the Meshkir said, there were many crates in the room. And when I came back in the morning, they somehow had disappeared. It was an investigation to what happened. And it showed that the owner of the factory came in the night before and when he saw that there were so many chickens that were going to, that were treif, because he asked the cleaner to move half of the non-kosher crates into the kosher area. When Rabbi Grossman figured out what happened, he contacted Tanuva, who was the company that bought most of these Cornish hens from the Schlachthaus in uh, in, in, in Migdal Hamek. And he, uh, he told them, Tanuva, and he said that he removed his hashkocha from these chickens and they should no longer buy any hens from this, from this company. It didn't take long for the situation to become complicated. The moment Tanuva stopped buying, the factory was in danger of closing down. And there's a lot of workers there. The owner of the company went to Ariel Sharon who was then serving as a minister of industry and trade and complained that Rav Yitzchak David Grossman was shutting him down and the factory is going out of business and uh, all these people are going to lose their business. They're going to lose their jobs. And he begged him to convince Rabbi Grossman to continue the Hashkocha. 
So Arik Sharon called up Rabbi Grossman. Rav Grossman, Ha'ishechad Quoting a pasuk from the Torah, talking about a, a taina that Hashem Yisbarach is one person sinned, and and, and you have you're angry with the whole nation. If one man sins, we will be angry with the whole congregation. The boss made a mistake. So not all the workers have to lose their jobs. Sharon was quoting the Posuk. Suddenly he was a Torah scholar. And, in, when he, and he is arguing with another Torah scholar. Rabbi Grossman said, this is not the kind of conversation that you have on the phone. If you want to discuss it, we have to do it face to face. So they had a meeting. And the first part of the meeting, Rav Grossman was giving Sharon a crash course on what Kashrus is all about. The next part of the meeting was spent with Rabbi Grossman telling Sharon a short crash course on what it takes, means to take responsibility for something that's important. And, you know, and, and you have to, you have the buck stops here. He, Rabbi Grossman said, for many years, you, means Rabbi Sharon, was, was were one of the highest-ranking officers in the army. What would you have done in a situation where one of your officers was given clear instructions and then went and did the exact opposite of what he had been ordered to do, endangering an entire mission? Would you have kept silent in the face of such insolent and irresponsible behavior? Sharon could not answer. I, too, said, said Rabbi Grossman, I'm an officer in the army, and people are relying on me to keep them safe and to make sure that when I give my heksha to something, they can rely on it. Here you have the owner of a factory that slaughters thousands of hens every day and makes millions in profits, and instead of focusing on the big picture, he interfered in a matter that involved only a few crates of hens, which were completely inconsequential in the long run. If one looks at this situation in context of the size of the factory compared to the loss of a few crates of chickens, how is he willing to endanger his entire company for no good reason? Well, to me, this type of behavior is a signal of mental instability. And if that's the case, and he really isn't stable, then I can't rely on him to follow the rules, and I can't provide a hechshah for an enterprise. The only way this factory will be able to remain under my kasha supervision is if the owner sells out to someone else. I won't deal with the factory as long as he is the boss. So that's what happened. It got sold. And somebody else took over and he gave back the hashkocha. A couple of minutes left. I want to share with you another story. Ah, what a story. You can't Make up such a story. He, during one visit to the United States, he boarded a flight from New York to Miami. And once the plane was in the air, he settled back in his seat beside the window, closed his eyes, and began singing softly a song that the Skolev and the Rebbe had made famous by Chazen David Werdiger. Zaydim helitsuni admod so he sang the song, and he's singing it, and he's thinking, and he's looking at it, and sitting next to him is Pesach Kron, Rabbi Pesach Kron. So um, 
the, one of the stewardesses came by and said, excuse me, do you happen to know who that rabbi is? Sure, Rabbi Krohn said. He's a very famous rabbi from Israel. He's known as the disco rabbi, and he devotes his life to the rehabilitation of children who are growing up in disadvantaged homes. Can I ask the rabbi a question? Go right ahead. I'm sure the rabbi wouldn't mind. My name is Miriam, she began. I was born into a Jewish home, but I know nothing at all about Judaism. Could you tell me if there's anything I can do to actually feel like a Jew? So Rabbi Grossman said, do you see how the two of us ordered special kosher meals? If you want to feel like a Jew, then I suggest you begin ordering special kosher meals for yourself. Because he doesn't cost her anything. You're on the plane, just says you want the meals, right? And then you'll start feeling like a Jew. She said, you mean to tell me that the special meals that people sometimes order have to do with being Jewish? Exactly. That's so interesting. I always thought it was because they have a restricted diet or they're vegetarians. She was quiet for a few minutes and then she said, okay, I'll try to start ordering special kosher meals, but would you mind explaining to me what the word kosher means? For a moment, Rabbi Grossman was at a loss how to explain <laughs> such a complicated concept of kashras in such a short amount of time to a person who never heard about it before. And then he had an idea. I'm sure you're familiar with the Ford company, correct? Of course. Do you know that Ford manufactures both trucks and regular cars? Yes, Rabbi. Now, I want to tell you something you might not know. The trucks made by Ford use a type of fuel called diesel, and the cars fill up on regular gasoline. The diesel fuel happens to be cheaper than the gasoline that, the fuels, that fuels cars. Now imagine for a moment, somebody's driving a car made by Ford. He pulls up to a gas station where he sees a truck driver filling up his tank with a diesel. He might think to himself, he's driving a truck made by Ford and I'm driving a car made by Ford. If diesel works for him, it'll also work for me. But if the driver fills up his car with diesel, he's going to damage the car. Why? Because the engines in cars and the engines in trucks are built differently. And where the larger and more powerful engine thrives on diesel, the, more, the smaller and delicate engine will be ruined by the unrefined diesel fuel. It's the same with the people. God in heaven created the entire world. His company, his firm, he created two different types of people, Jews and non-Jews, each of whom were gifted with different missions. The mission of the non-Jews is to develop the physical world, to build it and take care of it. The Jews have a different purpose. Theirs is not physical mission, but rather one of a spiritual and more sensitive nature. We've been put into this world to serve as the ambassadors of Hashem down on earth. We accomplish this through studying the lessons written in the Holy Torah. And just as he commanded us how to live our lives, he also told us which type of gasoline to use to fuel our respective engines. The non-Jews are allowed to use any type of gasoline they want. They can eat and drink anything they want. Their engine was built for, but the engine that was built for the Jewish body is more fine-tuned and sensitive. The gasoline that a Jew puts into his body has to be more delicate and tailored to his special soul. In a nutshell, that's the purpose of kosher food, and that's why God gave us rules to determine what's deemed kosher and fit for consumption. The woman said, I live in Florida. I really like to learn more about what it means to be Jewish. Where and how can I do that? And he set her up with his cousin, 
who just happened to be Rabbi Avrom Yeshaya Groner, who was the, the brother of the Mashkiach in, in Chaim Belinol, these two Chashiva rabbis, uh, so Rabbi Groner was in Kashrus, by the way, for many years. Anyway, he helped this woman. The young woman did end up calling Rabbi Groner, and she began learning about Yiddishkeit. Eventually, the stewardess turned her entire life around and became a Torah Jew. Wow. Just one of the millions of stories that have, all in this book, if you get a chance to, to get it, if you don't want to buy it, borrow it. Living legend Rabbi Grossman of Migdal HaEmek from Shar Press. Uh, time is up. Uh, I wish everyone a kasiva v'chasima toiva, and we hope to join you again after after the after Rosh Hashanah uh, for one session, I believe, and then after that we will be will be off the air. I mean, I'll be off the air. There'll still be music, and uh, we'll pick it up again after Sukkot. So, wishing everyone a if you need to reach me for any reason, uh, 718-336-8544, 732-534-9363, or you can email us at kashrus, K-A-S-H-R-U-S, at AOL.com, and uh, wishing you a wonderful new year.